But the last thing we want are to have uh, robots replacing teachers and robots in the classroom. I mean, after all, you can't replace teachers. I mean, you can't replace the human element. And that that's not at all we were talking about whenever we were uh, writing this paper and uh, coming up with the recommendations for moving forward. You're listening to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Join Michael Holtz and his guests for conversations about all things ORAU. They'll talk about ORAU's storied history, our impact on an ever-changing world, our innovative scientific and technical solutions for our customers, and our commitment to the communities where we do business. Welcome to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Happy Wednesday and welcome to another episode of Further Together, the ORU podcast. Um, It's been a minute since I've had a co-host, so I'm really excited to have my friend and co-worker Jennifer Carell join me today for a conversation about artificial intelligence and education. Um, Jennifer, welcome to the co-hosting side of the Further Together podcast. Thank you so much, Michael. I'm really excited to be here. This is my co-hosting debut. That's right. (laughs) Exactly. But you're such a natural. Um, I think we'll have a great conversation. So um, we have a great panel lined up today. Um, We have Chris Nelson from our very own ORU K-12 team. We have Guido Zarella and Bobby Blunt Jr. from the MITRE Corporation. And we have Tracy Glazier who is an educator, teacher in Virginia, and they're all going to tell us a little bit more about who they are. But Jennifer, first, um, tell us a little bit more about you before we have the panel introduce themselves. Sure. Thanks, Michael. Um, As Michael said, I'm Jennifer Tyrell. I am a senior education project manager here at ORAU in the K-12 group. And I have had the great privilege of being the project manager on an AI in education partnership project between ORAU and the MITRE Corporation. And this project has given me and our entire team a really great look into the potential uses for artificial intelligence in educational spaces. And I'm really excited today to continue the conversation that we've been having over the past year with the MITRE Corporation. Awesome. And we're going to have a great conversation. We have a lot to talk about today. Um, Chris Nelson, if you will tell us a little bit more about who you are, please. Thank you, Michael. Um, So I am Chris Nelson, as Michael said. Um, I am a project manager in the K-12 group, and I was uh, brought on uh, whenever MITRE and ORAU teamed up for uh, this great project. And I had the pleasure of being involved in a lot of the focus groups webinar and a great portion of the writing of the paper that we are all so excited to talk about. Awesome. Thank you so much. Guido Zarella, tell us about you. Yes, thank you for having me. So I'm Guido Zarella. I am the MITRE Corporation's Innovation Area Lead for the Decision Science R&D portfolio. But um, more specifically, I'm a Senior Principal AI Engineer in the AI and Autonomy Innovation Center within MITRE Labs, which is where uh, we engage in a lot of the um, boots on the ground research into various applications, mission-inspired, you know, outcomes of um, the deployments of artificial intelligence and machine learning against some of our nation's hardest problems. And so, as an excited consumer of the um, the intelligence um, and uh, depth of expertise that is kind of uh, evident in this paper, I'm really excited to be here to talk about all these things today. Awesome, and it sounds like really exciting work we do. So, look forward to hearing more from you. Um, and Bobby Blunt Jr., tell us about you. Sure, I am also with the MITRE Corporation and uh, I'm actually the head of our Texas Innovation Hub. And my main responsibilities are to help out with our academia, university engagements, our small business engagements, and also our STEM STEM engagements. Uh, In parallel, for for sort of a community aspect, I sit on the Northside Independent School District uh, School Board. It's the fourth largest in Texas. We have about 103,000 kids. And I sit on some regional and state boards also uh, in, in the state of Texas. And this, uh, this topic of AI has been extremely important for, to me from both a MITRE sense as well as for my, my school board sense. And just marrying these, t- these two together has been uh, absolutely fabulous. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. 
Excellent. Thank you, sir. And last but certainly not least is Tracy Glazier. Tracy, tell us a little bit about you. Uh, hi, everybody. I'm Tracy Glazier. Um, I'm a math teacher. I'm the boots on the ground. I am... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I have my elementary roots. I spent about uh, two or three years teaching uh, after I graduated from Penn State, a um, little bit in Pennsylvania, a little bit in California. Took 10 years off to hang out with my kids at home, came back. Um, I right now teach in Fairfax County Public Schools, which is in Virginia. Had about six years at the elementary uh, level, got bit by the math bug, started taking some coursework and kept going through my 11 years to get through middle school. And right now I'm in my fourth year of teaching um, high school at Herndon High School. Awesome, thank you very much, Tracy. So let's get started with the conversation. Um, Chris, if you would um, give us a little background on the development of ensuring equitable AI adoption in education, which is the paper that we um, jointly published, ORU and MITRE jointly uh, produced together. Sure thing, Michael. Um, well, months ago, uh, MITRE and ORU joined together in this effort to explore AI in education and to develop a framework for moving forward uh, with the movement of AI in education. So we formulated a plan to move forward with this with two focus groups and then using the information from the focus groups to inform a more focused webinar of five panelists. Um, we held two different focus groups with uh, teachers, school administrators, district administrators, and a state-level science coordinator. Um, each of these focus groups was two hours in length, and during the each of the focus groups, the participants were asked a variety of questions. Uh, some of these questions were about tools that are currently being used in their classroom or in their schools, their current understanding of AI, their current understanding of AI in education, ways that AI could improve what they do, any potential issues they might foresee with using AI, what they need to be able to utilize AI effectively in the classroom, and just from the questions that we asked, you can imagine that we got a lot of rich information. We used the information from this total four hours of the focus groups and then used that to inform the questions that were posed to five panelists in a webinar that was held after the focus groups concluded. Um, in this webinar, we had five panelists with varying backgrounds and varying roles, ranging from a current superintendent, former educators, university professors, and data scientists. So, so it was a wide, a wide swath of uh, expertise and knowledge that came into this webinar. Once the webinar was over, we had a lot of information we had to go through. We had all the information from the webinars. We had all of the information from the uh, or from the had the information from the focus groups and then from the webinar itself. And as you can imagine, the transcripts for this had a lot of stuff that we had to break down and uh code and get to the meat of what we were given. Um, together with MITRE, um, we broke this down. We used existing literature, um, which MITRE uh, did a lot of research on and actually forwarded to us what they thought might be pertinent to what we were going to include in the paper. And through the combination of the existing literature, the information from the boots on the ground in the webinar, and the information from those uh, that were part of the webinar, uh, we were able to get a greater picture and greater understanding of the current state of AI and education, and we're able to develop a framework to move forward in uh, this particular area of 
of interest to both ORAU and MITRE. Chris, I know that a ton of work went into the development of that paper, and it all started with the focus groups for teachers. And in my opinion, that is one of the most incredible parts of this project because we reached out to teachers to find out from those boots on the ground, as Tracy put it, um, exactly what's going on in their classrooms and what they think about AI in education. So Tracy, I'd like to ask you if you can tell us a little bit more about what it was like for you being involved in the focus group for teachers. So I loved the whole experience because I got to tell you, I was surprised at how much AI we were already using and I didn't even know it. I think as a teacher, I was nervous. I mean, everybody is when they start thinking about robots replacing humans and what that will end up looking like in a field where I feel like teaching is such an, a blend of art and science and wondering how um, the AI would fit into that was very curious for me. Being a part of the focus group and seeing how much AI I already used. And we talked about Fairfax County uses a math program where it's called um, Math Space. It's a program out of Australia and it has a component in it where kids, where there's an adaptive feature where kids are learning and answering questions and they can scoot through the topics that they demonstrate mastery on and they can dive deeper into and have resources for topics where they need more remediation. Um, that would be the number one thing that I can think about when I talk about how the AI is in my everyday um, teaching aspect. When I read Chris's paper, I was thrilled to see that they were very realistic in recognizing the other aspects of AI where it is also about saving teachers time. And time is one of those components of education where you know we all get the same 24 hours, but what are you gonna do with yours when you're with the kids? And diving deeper into those um, supports and structures that can make teacher time a little bit more efficient and meaningful when we're with the kids, I found very interesting. Tracy, I'm so glad that you brought that up about um, this fear that people have about robots um, coming in and replacing teachers. And that's not at all what we're talking about in AI and education. I'm glad you were able to learn that in the focus group and see that come out really clearly in the paper that we developed from this. Absolutely. So while we're on the topic of that paper, um, Chris, can you tell us a little bit about the recommendations that came out of the paper? If we're not going to have robots replacing teachers, what are we thinking of doing? Sure thing, Jennifer. I mean, the, the last thing we want are to have uh, robots replacing teachers and robots in the classroom. I mean, after all, you can't replace teachers. I mean, you can't replace the human ele element. And that that's not at all um, we were talking about uh, whenever we were uh, writing this paper and uh, coming up with the recommendations for moving forward. Um, with the recommendations, um, we uh, we did have five distinct recommendations that came out. Um, the first one is that there should be a critical focus on educating and empowering stakeholders. The, this includes the teachers in the classroom, the district administrators, the school administrators, the researchers into AI and the developers of AI technology. And in talking about this critical focus, there were some ideas um, and some specific things that could be done, um, such as discussing and bringing together uh, researchers and those that are involved in the educational operations uh, in central office or other educational systems, um, educating and teaching 
those in public education and private education about the usefulness of technologies and also the other side of that with the corruptibility and teaching them about algorithm bias and transparency that comes along with using any type of data tool. Um, training teachers on collecting and using data uh, in the classroom uh, with these AI technologies. Um, teaching school systems how to evaluate AIED technologies effectively. Getting the technologies in front of teachers to let them play with it before procurement decisions are made um, was a vital part of this critical focus in the first recommendation we had. If teachers have a chance to play with these tools or these technologies beforehand, then it can better inform school systems on what would be useful purchases versus what would just be wasting money. Um, the second recommendation we had was that both uh, school level and district level uh, administrators need to be open and transparent about one, what equipment are they purchasing? And more importantly, why are they purchasing it? What is the rationale? We found that a lot of times school systems and schools purchase equipment and just give it to teachers and say, use this, but teachers don't really understand why. Um, so we recommend that with any AI in education technology that is purchased in the future, that it's explained as to why it's being purchased and what it should be used for. Our third recommendation was that research into AIED technologies needs to include teachers as part of a stakeholder or focus group for testing of that and with the development team. Have teachers be part of the development of these tools so that these tools are more useful to those that are going to use them. Um, fourth, um, developers need to engage with classroom teachers more frequently um, to ensure that their products align with what is actually going on in a classroom. Um, we found that some of the current stakeholders sometimes feel like they're removed uh, from any part of the development process and that these researchers don't really involve teachers on these tools that are developed uh, and that by involving teachers in these, the tools will be more appropriate for what is going on in the classroom and for the material that's being taught. Finally, um, educators, administrators, and school systems should collectively discuss what the goals of AI in education is for their school. We realize that schools are gonna vary across states and across countries into what their goals are. And that everyone from the boots on the ground in the classroom, all the way up to the main decision makers in the central office of the school district need to be frank and candid with each other on what goals are for the district, trickling down into schools, and then finally in the classrooms. Thank you for that, Chris. That's a lot of really important, I think, recommendations. And I wanted to take this question to Guido and Bobby. Um, <clears throat> having, I know you've seen the paper, you've seen the recommendations. Um, how does that, how did those recommendations fit into the work that you do or, you know, Bobby specifically, you know, for you and your involvement with, um, your local school board and other other um, boards and committees, how do those recommendations play out? So I really appreciate uh, Tracy's comments and the extent to which a lot of these themes are kind of backed up in in the paper. I think one of the things that jumped out at me when I was when I was reading through this and and thinking about how everything I'm seeing here with AI and Ed um, relates to the difficulties that we've had deploying artificial intelligence into lots of different fields, you know, healthcare, uh, for example, um, over, over the coming decades where we've all seen this, the, the promise of machine learning systems start to kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, be backed up by real world, uh, science. So I was thinking through this from the lens of, um, once upon a time, you might have thought that AI in education meant, you know, robots in classrooms or intelligent tutoring systems. 
Um, for me, I remember when I got into the field in the early days working with AI and education, it was, um, I, I found a lot of inspiration in this, uh, this Neil Stevenson book written back in 1995 called uh, The Diamond Age, in which there's this young lady's illustrated primer. And it's this, you know, essentially like this AI book that uh, any child in the world could pick up and um, get the, the high quality education that, uh, you know, that, that was available to the, the king's daughter or whatever it was. And uh, I, I kind of look at this like as being pretty similar to what you see in uh, something like self-driving cars, right? Like, so we have been thinking of this technology as being imminent for literally decades at this point. You know, it's kind of the oldest trope to say, like, we were promised flying cars and here's, here's what we got. Um, and when you look at what we got today, we have some pretty unevenly distributed benefits of the technology. So you might have a $100,000 car that can uh, pull itself out of a parking spot, come pick you up and um, automate a, you know, a lot of the process of um, driving on the highway, for example. Uh, but if you are like most people in this world, you might just have uh, you know, something in your car that just beeps at you a lot if you're, uh, when you're parallel parking. Um, and so you find that uh, technology is not like this monolithic um, concept, you know, like AI robots is, is not really the, the, the end goal for most of us. But instead, you know, in mindful of the fact that teachers are obviously instructors, but, you know, we're really there to do uh, also classroom management and, you know, personalization of learning plans for students and obviously um, to, you know, proctors for testing and um, grading of uh, homework and, uh, you know, teaching effective communication skills and demonstrating, um, you know, high quality values for students. And there's kind of like this long list of uh, really high priority responsibilities that teacher has. It's not just going to be enough to, to drop the robot in, obviously. And so what you see is you get a lot of technology that is um, picking it a little at the edges of the problem. So you might have things like automated scoring algorithms, uh, you know, tr uh, Tracy mentioned that she didn't realize the extent to which AI was potentially already embedded in our lives. And I think that's, that's true across the, the spectrum. But here we see, you know, you can, you can model student engagement or frustration um, with the tool. You can model, um, you know, the, um, uh, you, you can do things like uh, ensure integrity of testing process and, you know, plagiarism detection. You can imagine that there are really great practice tools available to students now, you know, like to help practice your reading or practice, um, you know, coding and, um, and, and, and programming, um, you know, note-taking is probably, um, another area that's kind of all, all these tools for, uh, reviewing material outside of the classroom is another area where this stuff uh, pops up, you know, with speech recognition and, uh, technology making it possible to, to kind of, um, search information that you already have. So I think it's worth recognizing that AI's influence in the classroom is going to happen through a lot of micro channels and a lot of small choices or decisions that get made along the way. And most importantly, you got to recognize that in any uh, developing field where you see machine learning tools and AI tools having some benefit, but the equity component, uh, the equitable use of them is, is far from automatic. Um, the benefits are pretty unevenly distributed. You have this opportunity to reinforce existing, um, you know, uh, structural biases. And obviously that's um, just as uh, critical, if not more critical in an area like education than it is in other aspects of society. So what we really need is to make sure that all of these things are kind of being developed and evaluated in an enduring sense um, in partnership with a bunch of the different stakeholders. And so in medicine, you see things like, um, obviously in order to deploy a, a medicine or uh, an AI enabled uh, tool, you need to evaluate it and you are bringing you know, really good intentions and presumably you've evaluated it in some context where you, you find it effective. But what that doesn't uh, tell you about is what are the unintended consequences of deploying that tool. And so there needs to be some sort of um, trailing collection of real world evidence that uh, lets us understand the extent to which the consequences of a technology are the ones that we intended when we deployed it. And, um, and if not to um, engage in a feedback loop that allows us to adaptively improve uh, our use of these technologies for, for more equitable outcomes. So I saw a lot of that reflected in the paper and it got me excited because I think it's a pretty important message. Guido, that's great. Everything that you've brought up um, relates so well to what we're talking about in the paper. Um, and your analogy about the cars as compared with AI and education, I think is really important to help people understand 
the potential inequity that could exist in education. And like you said, um, with education, it's a much bigger deal than with cars. So what does this look like for teachers who are in the field who potentially start to use AI tools? How are researchers um, or people who are developing these tools going to help to ensure that they're getting data back from teachers and students while still protecting the privacy of the end users? Yeah, I mean, that's a fantastic question. And certainly um, that is the difficult, that's the heavy lift that we're talking about when we, when we think of you know, AI medicine, for example, uh, privacy um, overrides a lot of uh, the well-intentioned efforts to kind of collect um, data. And so there are practices and policies in place for kind of uh, aggregating, um, for building partnerships that, that make it possible to work across organizational boundaries. That's kind of one of the things that has been really exciting being within an organization like MITRE, which I don't know how many of our listeners are aware of the, um, you know, the charter of the MITRE Corporation, but we're, we're a not-for-profit uh, company with extremely deep technical expertise such that we can offer a lot of impartial and unbiased uh, technical analysis and um, you know, R&D that's kind of like free from some of the, um, the uh, self-interested um, R&D development that it necessarily happens in, uh, in industry. And so uh, one of the benefits of being in an organization like that is that we do find that people in organizations are more willing to partner with us to, um, to share data in a way that is privacy preserving and is, um, allows us to monitor unintended consequences of deployments of technology like in aviation safety, for example, or in cybersecurity. Um, so I think one of the things that our organization needs to think through is how we apply our strength in bringing these partnerships together and coalition building to make sure that the benefits make it all the way into um, all levels of the education system. I'd be really interested to use this as a lead in for, for Bobby, who manages a lot of really exciting partnerships in Texas uh, between our organization and local schools and, um, and probably has some really good ideas on this topic. I think you hit on some, some, some really good points. And I think uh, that the partnership one is really key in this, in this particular area because uh, you know, what we can do with the AI can be extremely powerful, uh, but we are gonna have to pull together quite a bit of partners uh, across the board to really make things happen the way that uh, I think the paper intended to and the way that I know each and every one of us are also interested in. You know, I had thought um, um, when I was uh, reviewing the paper, uh, without a doubt, I thought the points were, were right on. And my first sort of question was uh, to myself was, you know, how can we really, really have the impact and achieve the, the recommendations and action steps that, are, that were set forth? You know, uh, I think you all have talked very well about the, the, the teacher and the classroom, uh, classroom support. Uh, one of the elements I had also considered when looking at it saying, well, how can we make this more effective within for teachers across the board? A lot of different suggestions there. And there's minor things, for example, that I was thinking about is, is that we really need to converse a little bit further on uh, over the long run is, you know, where does AI really fit into education? Uh, for some of us in my district, uh, I'll use my district as one example, uh, is, you know, we have a lot of discussions on career technology in the house, and that leads to a different conversation. Or if we talk about a science or a core subject, it also leads to a different uh, the conversation in terms of who's involved, what teachers are involved, how it's involved, who's responsible for it, et cetera. And I think that's very important in this conversation also is to figure out when we talk about AI uh, within the classroom, you know, what are we actually stating the benefit of AI and where does AI really belong in that particular regard? Because that can vary depending what school district you're in, et cetera, on, on its overall effectiveness and how you're going to be able to achieve it. Uh, I think without a doubt, we want to continue to support our teachers, but I also was looking and saying, boy, when I look at the ideals presented here from a school board sake, again, I'll speak for my school board, not my MITRE sake for just a second. Uh, you know, how can I make this more scalable and how can I make it even more and more impactful? And, and one of the things um, I think everybody sort of realizes is, is, is a school district has a lot of different operations. Naturally, the most important one is that teacher in the classroom. But for most of us, for a lot of us, that's half our employees. And we've got the other half of other things, whether it be transportation side of the house, whether it be food service type side of the house, maintenance, uh, we're doing construction, et cetera. It's a boy, just like society, how can we leverage AI in those other responsibility areas that we have too? 
So it's taking things a little bit further than what the paper is talking about, but I thought the points of the paper actually applied to the other areas also. I think the other key element um, that I had realized is when we in the paper is talking about purchasing and funding, um, you know, a lot of, in a lot of cases, we really want to have magnitude. Those are decisions made by school boards. So my first thought was, <clears throat> how do we get school boards more educated within AI? Uh, we're going to take care of the superintendents, administrators, the paper point that out. But if we can educate school board members and others uh, that have that responsibility for the bigger type budgets, et cetera, I think that's what we really want to also point to and just something else that I was thinking about from a scalability sense. I like the, the, the points in the paper and be a little bit repetitive and just for the partnerships and other things come in, the bias and equity part of it is extremely critical. Uh, how we achieve that is going to take collaboration among not only us, MITRE and FFRDC, <clears throat> with industry, <clears throat> with the vendors that are producing things, where our, our school districts and teachers all working together to say, <clears throat> when we're talking about giving individualized, individualized attention, how can that actually be achieved? You know, what products would be provided? What services would be provided? You know, what feedback do we get from teachers on that? How do we honestly assess that? I think is extremely critical too. And to make sure that it is something that doesn't bias data and how we leverage data and what that means, is, it, it takes a good amount of conversation also. Uh, the last area I hit on is um, in the end where we're talking about a student impact um, and how can we have student impact across the board? And there's other things that, too, again, thinking a little bit broader from a scalability sense, you know, one of the things we want to do, uh, not only teach what AI is, but we also want to motivate students and others to engage in this field, see how it applies in this field. And that takes a little different approach, whether you did a high school, middle school, elementary school would be a little bit different. But that awareness type campaign, which I know some are doing AI uh, fields uh, in, in different areas, is extremely critical also when we talk about it from a long term type benefit. So those are some of the things I had taken a look from, uh, from, from more of a school board angle and also from my minor experiences. Well, Bobby and Guido, what you're talking about a bit certainly um, requires policy change um, on some level from you know, the this, this individual school level on up through the entire educational system. Um, it's not easy right? Policy change doesn't ever seem to be easy. But what are some first steps that, um, you know, educators like Tracy and, and even schools and, and school boards, Bobby, from your experience, could take to um, implement some of those policies? Yeah, I think one thing to remember, policy occurs at all different levels, uh, even locally. Uh, school districts, mm -hmm. we, we make our own policy. So we can establish, and I think this is something that was talked about in terms of the, the, the paper of having workshops and further dialogue. And all we need is a couple of good pilot districts uh, to work with, uh, get them to potentially change policies that we're talking about that would be beneficial, et cetera, and then it let it grow from there. You know, school districts, teachers, and others learn from each other, to put it lightly. So we can really get out there and have a successful type of pilot situation with incorporating those policy changes. Uh, that's one way that can make it happen. I think also, and, and I hope you, Tracy, back me up on this one, that classroom has, to be honest, uh, the decision-making that they're making there, as well as uh, at, at that individual uh, school itself, are also things that, with working with the local community and others, where they can drive and be and demonstrate some successful efforts uh, that, again, <clears throat> could be a pilot to show how we can, uh, we can help out. So I think you start with pilot-type efforts, lessons learned, and then as opposed to trying to do a national type of effort or a state type of effort first uh, to have the impact that you want to. Yeah, I think that really resonates with me. I think one of the things that I would want to uh, underscore here is that, you know, deployments of AI in, in education are not kind of some future concern. They're happening kind of automatically. They're, uh, the, these technologies are inserting themselves into everyday life in ways that uh, make the implications impossible to miss in schools. So in the same way that, you know, um, there's a ferocious, you know, competition for um, various entities to control what makes it into textbooks, what, uh, what makes it into classrooms, what uh, there's, there's going to be technology that gets brought to bear in all aspects of an education system that have embedded within them AI practices or tech pieces of technology that are relevant there. And so what needs to happen, I think, is uh, exactly what Bobby was just kind of alluding to, that you know uh, we need to be aware for 
um, opportunities to share information and to learn from one another about what's effective and what's not effective and uh, where are things kind of, you know, 15 degrees off of course that we thought they were headed towards. And, um, and that's going to require a lot of a bottom-up effort in order to, to drive the conversation towards something that allows for, for larger policy, policy shift, in my opinion. I love, awesome. Guido, that you just said from the bottom up. Um, and for us, we know that teachers are at the bottom of that. They're the ones working with the students every day. So Tracy, I wanna ask you, as we talk about making these types of policy changes, um, which of these recommendations that we've discussed and, and all the topics we're talking about in that um, as we think about AI in education, which is the most important to you as a teacher to have policymakers consider? You know, I don't know, <laughs> to be honest with you. I've been listening to and um, almost jumping in so much, listening to what everybody's saying. I can go back to what Chris was saying about the writing of the paper and how much they value the teacher input. And that just warms my heart so much because we can have everybody talking about what they think is best, but actually going to and talking to the teachers is such a critical part of the conversation. When we talk about what Bobby was saying about how to affect the policy, the interesting thing is a lot of times teachers are resistant to top-down kind of things because they feel like maybe people who are coming up with these um, new policies or ideas are not really in touch with what's needed. So when Guido starts talking about the bottom up strategy, you know, teachers are crazy about finding anything that they think will work in their classroom tomorrow. If you go to any professional development, the teachers are hungry for what can I take with me and implement tomorrow in my classroom. Everybody that is walking into a school and working with kids is doing that because they want kids to learn and they wanna do what they do better every day. And that's where I think we really need to tap into. When it comes to AI, you have this fear. And so I'm in my 50s. So when I started my teaching career back in the 1990s, there was no computer, there was no laptop. I, you know, I, I taught with an overhead projector and that was technology at the time because before that I was writing on a chalkboard. So you have this huge range of natural inclination, of interest, of ability, of when it comes to technology. And with that is wrapped in an awful lot of fear. So when I'm standing in front of my kids and the technology fails me, that is a vulnerable position that I don't wanna ever be in, especially when I'm trying to sell math to a bunch of eighth graders that don't want what I'm selling. Um, so, so, so trying to make sure that we support the teachers and give them enough technology so that they're enticed and they want it and they see its value, that's the number one thing about getting teacher buy-in. If it's not going to overwhelm, and then Jennifer, you and I talked about, um, you know, I went to a professional development one time and on the top of the screen where we walked in that intro screen, it said, I, um, I don't have time to build a fence. I'm too busy chasing all these cows. We That's have, exactly right. <laughs> we had this conversation where getting a teacher to take a day off from being in charge of the planning and the instruction and the assessment for those kids so that they can better learn a tool to come back and improve what they're doing. That's a really tough timing thing. No teacher wants to be away from their class, but at some point in time, we got to go build that fence. Um, so it, it's really just such a tricky thing to try to implement something new. Teachers feel like there's something new coming at them every year. Uh, we get new initiatives and, and we're still trying to wrap our minds around what they told us to implement last year. And they don't ever come in and say, remember that, that we told you last year, take it away, take it off your plate. It's one more thing that everyone's trying to do to make what we do more effective with the kids. 
Um, and so that's, that's the number one thing. And I go back to what I said initially at the start, the fact that so much of this research started with teacher conversations and teacher feedback is just so critical in my mind. Well, and Tracy, when we talked last week, one of the things that um, you mentioned was, you know, <clears throat> during the pandemic, as students have been away from their schools, but they've been, you know, on their devices, um, now there's this sort of push away from technology a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. So, so you have this on the one hand, um, you have the, the thought of no technology, but also learning loss. And how, how do you reconcile, um, how do you reconcile those two things? Yeah, I don't know. We're, we are struggling in education. So many, so many teachers that I, that I talked to uh, this year is harder than last year, if you can imagine. Um, last year in Virginia, we were um, and in, in uh, Fairfax County, March of 2020, we were shut down and we didn't go back into the schools for a, a full year. So teaching from my living room with the dogs barking and, and trying to jerry-rig, you know, cameras and, and video recordings and really um, wrapping my mind around a bunch of technology that, like I said, as a 50 year old, uh, just doesn't come naturally to me. Um, that learning curve was huge. When we went back into the classroom this fall, we knew it would be bumpy because of the gaps in learning. What we did not expect was the pushback that we got from the parents and the kids about that online resource that I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. So uh, we don't have at the high school level, we don't have textbooks for our math classes. We have an online curriculum that is just so adaptive and wonderful, but after being at home and learning through the screen for a year, the parents were just real vocal in their pushback against, please do not put my kid on a computer to learn math you know, um, please, please do not ask him. So the fallout of that is at the same time when we're adapting our curriculum to accommodate for the levels of math that the kids missed and the holes that they have. And, you know, so many of these kids were so you know, the interesting thing is they are really very sad, very savvy. So last year, my algebra two kids um, we got very good at using the math apps to do a lot of their homework and things for them. I tried to figure out what they were doing to see if I could beat the system. And I couldn't <laughs> figure out how to do the apps that I knew the kids were using to beat the system. So gosh, how do we tap into that, right? How do we get that ability that the kids have to work around the learning to be a part of their learning? Trying to get the, it, the technology back into the classroom without having that parent and kid push back from really the PTSD of what we handled through virtual learning uh, will certainly be tricky, I think. I think that's a really excellent insight, Tracy. Um, and I wonder, Bobby, what about in Texas? Are you seeing the same sort of pushback on computer-based learning? Or are you seeing that AI or other technologies are being used to help with some of that learning loss that we all experienced over the last year? Yeah, to be honest, it would be a mixture depending uh, where I'm at, uh, which community I'm talking about, et cetera. So uh, there's no set answer. Um, but, but, you know, one thing I would add uh, to that, one thing we have found beneficial during this time period, like Tracy talking about with the learning loss or some other things, and it gets back to the uh, partnership that we was talking about a little bit earlier also, is um, we, we found sort of creative ways to engage with students and teachers 
during after school and club type programs. And, and the way that we've done that, we've had some of our university and vendor partners that would develop STEM, AI slash projects, initiatives, et cetera, and making those into fun activities uh, to engage with, um, even down at the elementary school level as after school type programs or through high school and middle school through club type programs and include some creative things that actually keep individuals off a computer, which is a good point by Tracy, and, and, and teaching things even through card games or using uh, robotics and other type of things to, to develop the type of concepts. So we're able to still introduce the new technology, but we're doing it in sort of different ways outside of, I'd say outside of the classroom, it's still part of the classroom, it's just a different part of the day, et cetera. So those are the type of things that we're doing. That sounds really interesting, Bobby. Um, Guido, any thoughts from you on the, I guess, balance between learning loss and devices? And is there a place where AI can, can be used to help students and teachers catch up? I mean, on the one hand, it sounds like from what Tracy's saying, yes, if the parents are okay with their students continuing to be on devices, but um, maybe it, maybe it's a workaround like, you know, Bobby was talking about. Yeah, that's such an interesting um, tension between real world challenges that we have here, right? Because I think we recognize that if we are to use these technologies as a means of ex uh, filling in gaps, you know, created from learning loss or from, you know, any other type of structural structural challenges that we're facing, that uh, we expect that um, the barriers to adoption don't include, you know, just the, the, the social cultural factors, which of course every classroom is always buffeted by. And so I don't know that I have answers, but I, I'm, I can reflect back on my own education and, and, and um, you know, thinking through what Tracy was talking about how um, engaging with the students who are really motivated to want to use this technology because it is a part of their everyday life in, in a enduring way and it's kind of uh, transparent to them in a sense. So they know how to use it so effectively um, that it's, it's natural to want to engage with it. But recognizing that sometimes that, um, that implies needing to offer it to them in, in something that's outside the, the bounds. You know, like I, I always think through the, some of the most valuable stuff that I ever experienced from the educators who touched my life were just the passion and the love for learning and engaging with um, the, the, you know, the, the whole world um, outside of the classroom through um, fostering that love of, uh, of learning inside the classroom. And so I do recognize that some of the tools are going to be by their nature, things that aid in practice outside of, uh, you know, outside of the classroom. So I think through how um, there are technologies that just make it um, easier to take notes and easier to practice your reading and easier to practice your foreign languages and easier to practice your, your math and uh, recognizing that if we're not going to turn over all of our class time to that, which is, which is reasonable, then we need to find ways to help students feel motivated to engage with the stuff outside of the classroom and to support them in that without, you know, being there every step of the way. So it's an interesting challenge and definitely something that um, I hope that as the technology, you know, tendrils kind of infiltrate our, our life in lots of different ways, that things like apps on phones and, uh, and you know, uh, the, the, the homework uh, technologies uh, are going to make it a little bit easier to, to make up for that. But I don't know that there's any one answer that, you know, we're ready to go. Here's the shovel and, and start going with it. But, um, but I do, um, this, this is what makes education such an, uh, an enormous challenge. All the easy answers obviously got taken a long time ago. And we've got a lot of extremely motivated educators and a lot of students who are passionate and a lot of parents who are passionate and, um, and figuring out how to kind of fulfill the needs and, and make sure that we're getting the consequences out of this that we wanted. Um, so for part of this, I think it still ties back to if we can demonstrate the effectiveness of the technologies that we're using in terms of like 
I understand we're not looking to sit kids in front of screens, but they, they get this benefit um, that they don't get out of a textbook is a really nice story to be able to tell and that we can kind of at least nudge behaviors in, in a direction where students feel empowered to um, embrace technology in a way that feels natural to them while, um, while also getting some, some benefits out of it that, that might not have been obvious to them from the front. I love that you mentioned how important passion is from teachers for educating students. I think that um, that's often overlooked by teachers that, that the pure passion that they have on the inside is really coming through and changing um, the lives and the future trajectories of their students. We have a lot of passion here on the team that's been working on this project with ORAU and MITRE. So um, we'd like to continue that that passion and continue the work that we've been doing. And while, as Guido said, there's no easy answer that we're looking for right now, we wanna keep on exploring this AI and education question and seeing what we can find out. So Chris, Guido, um, what are the next steps for the ORAU MITRE partnership? What do you see happening next? Um, I'll, um, I'll take the first shot at this. Um, I, I think that ORAU and MITRE has laid a great foundation for something that we can build upon. Um, one of those, I think Bobby touched on um, whenever he was talking about uh, pilot programs um, in regards to policy changes. But I, I want to go a step further, not just policy changes, but um, just a pilot program for boots on the ground case studies of AI ED technologies in the classroom. This can incorporate the examination of the policy changes. It can also help address the um, ethics and equity issues that are in education um, and will also help give us more data on which we can build um, in the future. I mean, in total, I know that in the paper we had um, seven different next steps but um, I just wanted to touch on that boots on the ground and case study and expanding a pilot program to address the ethics and equity since that was something that Bobby brought up previously. That makes a lot of sense to me. I'd be really interested in, in, in Bobby's thoughts on this as well since he's, um, he's really well positioned, I think, to support a lot of these next steps and partnerships that we're, we're looking to drive through uh, through this partnership. Thanks, Glenn. I, I think, uh, and it goes back to sort of the beginning where we sort of introduce uh, who we are, uh, both from a MITRE standpoint or a U standpoint, I think leveraging who we are is gonna be extremely critical as we continue to move along. You know, the uh, effort that you all have put in in terms of uh, not only working together on this paper, but ORU and the connections that you all have uh, to universities, to the districts, et cetera, and help us pinpoint which ones are not only the best pilots, but let's keep this moving. How do we, yeah, I'll go back to my scalability to say, hey, you know, we can partner with so-and-so to do this. We can partner with uh, so-and-so to make this happen. We can communicate to others. We can have these workshops. We can get the messages out there on the successes that we're having across the board. Uh, I think leveraging MITRE and our FFFRDC role uh, that we have, where we're looking uh, from literally cradle to grave, the whole picture aspects in terms of how AI can be uh, effective, not only from an operational sense, from an engineering sense, from a funding sense, from a purchasing sense, you know, leveraging our full capabilities of what we do as a system engineering type of corporation, I think it's gonna be beneficial also uh, to, this uh, to this particular effort. Uh, I will add, I know there's some, some, some university and district partners that are ready to engage right now. And I think you all know those too. And I think our next step is to uh, uh, is to continue this dialogue that we're having, but to actually begin to engage some of the suggestions we have, make things happen, assess them, give feedback on them, et cetera, uh, to, to, to make a, to continue things on. If I can jump in here, just um, one of the things that I find about, you know, and this is kind of a new topic for me personally since joining in the workshops, having such a broad scope of what we're talking about with AI, I think sometimes is both a blessing and a curse. 
because finding where to start and and how to initiate that with what direction are we talking? Are we talking about student engagement? Are we talking about teacher support? Are we talking about instruction? Are we talking about assessment? It's just, it's so broad of a scope, trying to say where it starts and where we're gonna get the most bang for the buck to then continue to loop people into wanting to be a part of it. I think that that's the greatest challenge uh, for right now. Because if I think about in my everyday what I could do um, tomorrow that would make it better for my kids or how I could get my colleagues to bite into and um, be a, a part of a new initiative, it comes from results. If we can see, hey, this works and everyone's going to want it. Um, and I think sometimes that that's, that that's what's hard with teachers. It's almost too big of an octopus to kind of in, encapsulate, to present to a teacher or a colleague, hey, this is what we want to do to try to make what we do better. So it sounds like we have a lot to do <laughs> in a lot of different places. Um, not just with you know local school boards and individual teachers, Tracy, and how to eat the elephant, as they say, one bite at a yeah. time, or eat the, eat the octopus, as you said. Yeah, you know, um, we always say, you know, how do you need an elephant? One scoop at a time, but I don't even know where to dig in. Because, right. Um, I think right now, supporting teachers, and I love the part of the paper um, where they talk about, you know, including rather than replacing teachers and developing new tools to support that. And then, um, you know, respecting teacher time, like saving teachers time and help the students with their learning. I think that that is, um, you know, one of those things, you know, a big push in education right now is a lot of small group instruction. So if I could put a kid you know, a group of kids that are engaged. See, and that's the other really difficult part of teaching. You know, we'd like to think of the kids as these sweet cherubs that just come to school every day hungry for, you know, what we have to impart and all of the wisdom that I have. But I got to tell you something, they don't want it all the time. Mm -hmm. And so having the ability to break that one class into smaller groups and putting the kids that are excited about something in some kind of meaningful learning task where they're getting what they need, where my then skill of talking to the tough customers, working with the kids that are reluctant learners um, and, and, and bringing them into whatever content I'm trying to um, address that day, you know, that would be the number one thing that me as a teacher, that I would, you know, sink my teeth into. What can you, what can you sell me that's going to make my time more valuable with the kids that need it the most? Can I follow I up on Tracy? Tracy's uh, point that I think that's extremely well said and well represented because the other thing that I think Tracy and teachers would bring up too, you know, they're, they've got so many other things on their plate also uh, that's also being asked of them uh, separate from their job they have now I mean, from mental health aspect there's other stem type activities other things everybody's starting to demand hey i've got this idea this idea so i think her last point is extremely important to me it really is whatever pilot and things we're doing it can't be that we're researching experimenting per se and involving teachers that way but really giving them solutions that help right now that's that's the step we've got to work together to say which one of these uh, areas that we're working with AI are most promising that can have an immediate type impact given our concern of time and the other concern of, hey, they've got a lot of other things they're being asked to do on their plate too. Absolutely. I think that's going to be one of the things that drives um, our answer to that question about what the next steps are. How can we benefit teachers the most right now? I'm so glad that you guys were able to give us all of this great information today. Michael, I am so glad also that you included me in this podcast. 
I'm glad too. And um, we've had a really great discussion today and a lot of, I mean, honestly, I think this is the next step in an ongoing conversation that we will have about this issue. Um, and I hope that um, Bobby and Guido and Tracy and Chris and whomever else we need to bring to the conversation will come back sometime and talk about where we are and where we're headed. Um, you know, maybe a few months down the road. So thank you all so much for joining us today. Um, Tracy Glazier, Bobby Blunt, Guido Zarella, and Chris Nelson, and my co-host, Jennifer Terrell. Thank you all so much, and have a great rest of your day. Thank you for listening to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. To learn more about any of the topics discussed by our experts, visit www.orau.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at ORAU and on Instagram at ORAU Together. If you like Further Together, the ORAU podcast, we would appreciate you giving us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your reviews will help more people find the podcast.